My mom just died. She didn't. Hold on to what your original thought was. She's gonna live forever. God doesn't want her. Devil's afraid of her. But I want you to have that one second reaction so you can answer these questions. One, what was the first thought or the beginning of that thought that popped into your head? And two, after you had that thought, what do you think you would have said to me if I said this to you in a conversation or just, I don't know, in any way that you thought I could see you? And I ask that because there's a story that's absolutely blown up because of this streamer by the name of We Found the Body. And that's because while streaming, he asked this question to another creator. Kirby, where the f*** have you been? Right, that's another creator by the name of Miss Nerdy Curvy, and she responds, well, my mom died. And this was his reaction. Oh my God, well, tell you what, Miss Nerdy Curvy, you know what we're not gonna do? We're not gonna talk about it in my chat, because it's Friday, and that is a whole big bucket of bummer. And I'm sorry for your loss, but we're not doing that in my fucking chat. One, wow, what the fuck, and two, no, that is not where it ends. You said, no, that's fine, you asked, so I told. No, I didn't ask you to tell me the biggest bummer news in the world. I said, hey, what's up? How are you? You know what? Let me give you a little bit of a lesson, Miss Nerdy Kirby. Actually, fuckhead, if uh, I could intervene. You said, where have you been? She said, my mom died. She just answered your fucking question, you worthless twat. Here's a lesson. When someone says, my mom died, say, sorry to hear that. Wishing you the best. Or you fucked up friends like I do? Took enough tries. How'd you finally get her? But also, only if you know each other like that, and you know, it's a two-way street. And the girl that shared this with you, Alicia, when she posted on Twitter, she seemed to think she was also in the wrong. Saying, I know I'm also in the wrong a little for saying, well, my mom died in a stream after being asked where I've been. No, you answered a question. When we found the body made an apology, he accompanied it with the excuse, I was just annoyed from the repeated trauma dumping that had been happening that week. Yeah, trauma dumping is a thing. That is not what happened. You singled out a person going through a hard time and made them feel worse. You just exposed yourself as an empty, uncaring man who decided to belittle someone going through a rough time. Plus, I saw after you tweeted your apology, you posted an eight-minute video then putting the blame back onto her. And you talked about the people that have a problem with it as whining, annoying, sniveling bitches. Also, in case any of the dummies from his chat that were on his side come into this one and you're like, well, what are you doing to him? I've made it very clear who I am. I am a dick. But specifically, I try to only be a dick to assholes, just like Team America World Police taught me. But ultimately, that's where we are with this story, and hey, I'll pass the question off to you. What are your thoughts here? Also, just realized I jumped into the news too quickly. Hi, welcome back to the Philip DeFranco Show. Make sure to hit that like button, otherwise I will berate you if you ever say anything that is not a happy thought, or just as a way to show support for your second favorite dickhead on the internet uh, talking about the news. And then, Pornhub just released your search history. Now luckily, not just you. Rather, they did it for the group, releasing the top searches for 2022. And whenever they release data like this, I'm always fascinated because it's not something that everyone talks about in polite society. And also, when it comes to stuff like this, there are people that say one thing but actually do another, and that's fine. Don't feel bad or even worse about it. Shame's just ingrained in our society. Something I feel like I can especially attest to being a former Catholic. Shame's like the name of the game. But hey, let's look together. Let's see what we find out. Starting with a bad day for some weebs. Hentai, no longer the number one search term. Rather, that gets silver and has since been replaced by lesbian. The gay agenda is winning, people. All those pearl clutchers were right. Then, as far as top adult stars, you have Abella Danger, Lana Rhodes, Riley Reed, Violet Myers, Angela White. Also, the top three growing trending searches, you had Gamer Girl, Trans Girl, and Thick Latina. They also released most popular search term based on state, you can take a screenshot of that. I had to blur it out, but apparently Florida, a huge fan of the British Broadcasting Company. Feel free to use that information in the next conversation you have where you say, hey, where are you from? And that uh, is the end of the segment. And now you have this information in your mind and uh, you do with it whatever you want. You're welcome and or I'm sorry. And then the mental health crisis among American students is getting worse. Right? Even though pandemic lockdowns are over and schools have resumed normal functions, it seems like there are systemic issues that are just not getting resolved. With a new poll by Effective School Solutions, which provides schools with mental health services, finding that 90% 
of administrators and nearly 60% of parents believe that there is a growing youth mental health crisis. Meanwhile, almost three in five administrators say the issue is the same as or worse than it was a year ago. And a very interesting but also key thing here is that 80% of parents think that schools should be providing mental health resources, but only 16% have a high level of confidence in their school's ability to deal with mental health issues. And while that figure jumps to 40% among administrators, that is still well below a majority. And that low level of confidence makes more sense when you consider that nearly half of parents and educators say that they are worried that there isn't enough staff to address these issues. And only 44% of administrators say that their schools have adopted broad mental health screenings. This, despite the fact that the two top concerns among administrators are identifying students with needs and having sufficient staff to support mental health needs. And that low staffing is something that we've seen backed up by federal data, which showed that nearly one in every five schools reported vacancies in mental health positions at the beginning of this school year. Though shortages of mental health staff, it's, it's not a new thing. While experts recommend one school psychologist per 500 students, the national average is one per 1,160, and in some states you're looking at one per 5,000. There's also a similar discrepancy with the number of recommended school counselors. One per 250 students is recommended, but the national average is one per 415. And since this crisis has shown no sign of letting up, you know, th th we're at a breaking point. And so to address this, we've seen schools increasingly turning to an interesting trend, which is telehealth. According to federal data from this spring, 17% of public schools reported having telehealth services, with a larger concentration of those services being used in rural areas and at middle and high schools. And you have people arguing for this because those services can massively expand access for school districts that are seeing a high demand for mental health needs, but have a low supply of practitioners for the job. So instead of trying to find people to hire, or if you've been trying and it's just not happening, districts end up getting telehealth contracts with private companies, local providers, nonprofits, and state-run programs. And so this move is seen as something that can bridge serious accessibility gaps for students. For example, research has found that underserved families and kids had much lower no-show rates for online therapy visits than in-person appointments before the pandemic. And telehealth can give more options for people with specific needs. Right? Think of even basic things like language barriers. But understand, this is not a one-size-fits-all fix. There's still going to be concerns regarding quality of the care of telehealth versus in-person. There are also challenges like patients not having the right technology to log in or having enough privacy to do their sessions at home or school. There's also concerns for the schools that are using this because those contracts need to be paid down the road. And right now, a lot of districts are using pandemic funds. But ultimately, where I want to leave this is with two questions. One, for everyone, what are your thoughts with this story? But also two, if you are a student or if you're a parent of a student, have you seen any of this yourself? And if so, how has it been working for you or the, the people around you? And then the holidays are rapidly approaching, which means we're all looking for great gifts. And I can't say enough about this one. I'm talking about the fantastic sponsor and longtime partner of the show, Ridge. You know, I had Ridge wallets before they even became a sponsor. I love that Ridge has this minimalist front pocket wallet that's slim, RFID blocking, and it comes with a lifetime guarantee. Because we all know men's wallets get ridiculously bulky. You stash in everything in there and it's just not practical for anyone. But the Ridge, it helps you carry less, but always what you need. And their sleek design is what I love most. There are over 30 colors and styles with two metal plates bound together by a durable elastic band. It makes it easy to get out what you want and easy to put something back in. And their key case is also sleek and durable, holds up to six keys, takes the jingle out of the whole key ring experience. But the key thing here is that Ridge products are a game changer. So check out their wallets and key cases today over at ridge.com slash DeFranco to get their best offer of up to 40% off until December 22nd. And then chaos reigns at Twitter right now. When I, when I say that, it feels like I'm stating the obvious. Right? We've seen and talked about a lot of it. Musk's been firing people in mass. People who have been staying have been having to sleep at the office. There was the initial botched launch of Twitter Blue. He's been rolling back misinformation policies. And it appears more and more in addition to kind of the, the trollish shit that he always did. He's using the platform, which 
she now owns to spread misinformation and empower far-right viewpoints. But when I see the situation, I just think of it as kind of a, a garbage fire, a trash soup, if you will. But I also understand that there are more things at stake here, but to get a better idea of the actual implications that Musk's takeover has had, we spoke to Graham Brookie, who's the senior director of the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab, which is a think tank that researches extremism. And he told us that the biggest shifts with a platform that have been kind of the most concerning aren't just the sort of top-level policies and rules that Musk tweets about. It's not necessarily the changes that he's made to the platform just yet. It's the changes that have been made uh, or just kind of fallen into on how the platform operates, how it's designed, funded, and governed. And so especially that third one, governed. If you have uh, a lot of experts that are there to do a thing, so for instance, the entire human rights policy team was laid off, which means that there aren't as many experts thinking about really, really complex global issues that involve human rights or conflict, times of war and peace, uh, and making decisions about how the platform is going to navigate that. And so the biggest change so far has been uh, either the letting go or dismissal or attrition of real expertise that are making really complex decisions about the internet. And that lack of governance and operational structure could cause major issues for the platform from a technical standpoint. If there's nobody running Twitter, the actual infrastructure of Twitter, the actual data centers on which Twitter is built and operates and, and continues to operate, but if that breaks, it could break irrevocably. Beyond that, Brookie said those same structural issues also pose serious threats to safety and security on Twitter, including some really major threats like terrorist extremism. And that pertains to both foreign terrorist activities, such as recruitment by groups like ISIS, as well as domestic violent extremism, like those who are trying to overthrow the government. If you don't have the teams that are focused on that and, and or are involved in the organizations or the bodies that have been made in order to build better standards, and iterate on those issues, right? To, to do what works and then think about it a little bit more and then adjust as uh, extremist organizations adjust their tactics, which they do pretty consistently on the internet, then you're gonna not be showing up to that space and doing it comprehensively or at the best level that you possibly could as a platform. And he also added that Twitter needs to decide if it will continue to have representation on key diplomatic protocols like sharing information on best practices on how to stop the recruitment of terrorists. And that's a serious challenge that they should have to figure out because really it matters how one of the biggest social media platforms in the world shows up in that space. There's also concerns that Musk's decision to reinstate banned accounts could exacerbate extremism. While we've seen differing claims online, according to Brookie, it's too early to actually tell if hate speech and political violence have increased on the platform since Musk took over. But there are some studies that show how specific kinds of hate speech have spiked as certain influencers or groups that were banned get their accounts back. But qualitatively, I mean, it, just by sheer force of logic, if you have amnesty for a number of influencers or groups that have been engaged in pretty egregious uh, activity on the platform, they were removed for a reason, whether that's recidivist activity, whether that's increased calls for violence, stuff like that. Uh, then you're going to have more hate speech on the platform when they come back onto the platform. That's just plain logical. And we're seeing that play out quite a bit. With Brookie also going on to explain that there is a very broad spectrum of radicalization among online groups, ranging from hardcore extremism calling for violence to ideologues who are enthusiastic about those kind of ideologies and conspiracies. But those groups generally operate in different spaces online. And while there is some overlap, we really start to see big problems when there's someone with a big platform who encouraged that kind of overlap on specific narratives. And when there are influencers that say, hey, this is something that we're really, really about. This is something that we want to encourage then there's a lot more overlap and amplification that reaches a lot more people. 
And that's really scary. But also outside the people who fit that description and have been let back onto the platform, Musk himself has also been known to amplify conspiracies and other harmful narratives. And that's something he's done way more since taking over Twitter. It's kind of this engagement at all costs business model where uh, if you have just bought Twitter for $44 billion, then you want as many people to be on Twitter as humanly possible. And you kind of want more engagement because that's your, going to be your main incentive in order to run profit. And adding, right now, Musk has been getting a lot of attention for amplifying and engaging with those on the far right, which in turn creates a feedback loop with those groups. And Brookie expects that to continue. It's a little like we're seeing one of the wealthiest people on the face of the planet take over uh, in a private way, uh, public information infrastructure, and then be red-pilled at the same time that he's taking that over. And that's really scary. Uh, and for people that have been, that have really, really depended on Twitter as a tool for engagement, as a tool to connect and marginalize communities, uh, including some of his former employees at Twitter, they're seeing increased threats that don't just play out on Twitter. They play out in the real world. Well, with this whole Twitter situation, I think there are a lot of people, including myself at times, that are like, okay, I guess I'm just going to watch the fire. It's also so important that we remember that, yes, in addition to being a public town square, Twitter plays an oversized role in how news media is shared and consumed. The news cycle, second by second, operates on a on platform like Twitter. It is the news cycle, full stop. And so until the news cycle finds another home, it's going to just be competing with this kind of online dialogue of, of ideology and culture wars. And that's a very strange spot for free and open information ecosystems to be living in right now. And with all this, there is this concern that Musk doesn't truly see this as one of the most important communication tools in the world, but also maybe a troll farm that he can kind of water whenever he feels like it. My biggest concern right, with Twitter right now is that it's changing extraordinarily rapidly under leadership that I don't think takes seriously the responsibility and the opportunity the platform has around the world. If you have a CEO who's an extraordinarily powerful, extraordinarily rich person who lives in an information bubble that is completely different than the rest of the world and a little bit detached from the rest of the world, and they're making decisions about how the world communicates, then that isn't necessarily in line with a free, open, and interoperable internet and information ecosystem that prioritizes uh, engagement with everybody on an equal footing as opposed to amplifying specific voices. The entire conversation about the importance of open information ecosystems around the world gets a little bit lost in, in our talking so much about what Elon Musk's three core feelings at any given moment are. I don't care. I really do care about the world's ability to access information and engage with people around the world. That's really important. And I'm not entirely sure that that's the number one priority at, at Twitter right now. But hey, uh, in the meantime, we all get to live through this moment of history together. And for now, we're going to have to just wait to see how it all plays out. But that is where today's show ends. Thank you for watching, liking, subscribing, maybe even supporting our sponsors. But with that said, of course, as always, my name's Philip DeFranco. You've just been filled in. I love yo faces and I'll see you tomorrow. Wow, there's less than seven shows left for the year.